My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dai Cerullo. Dai is the head of inclusion and diversity at JAM, a crowdfunding platform designed specifically for musicians. And she's also a diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility consultant who helps individuals and organizations really look deeply at the cultures they're making and the cultures they're creating and how to shift those cultures towards a place where true diversity becomes possible. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Ally Up, which is designed to go deeper into her process and methodology for helping individuals and organizations become allies for a more diverse and inclusive culture. And her own journey through the foster care system of Massachusetts and the places that took her, took her to and the challenges she had to face is one of a deep and heartfelt commitment towards making the world better for people who have been on the receiving end of the violence and brutality that our society enacts on too many of us. And that sounds pretty heavy, maybe, right? But she's also incredibly willing and able to engage with that from a place of humor and love. And that's what I love the most about this conversation, the both and... This is both really heavy and we have to live with compassion and love that Di brings to this work. I'm really excited for you to get a taste of that today. I know that speaking for myself, this journey towards being a white man in a world where that comes with all sorts of privileges and benefits and also all sorts of blind spots. She really helped me lean into that conversation with a lot of fun and playfulness and a sense of what it is to change and grow without feeling like I have to destroy who I am in the process. So if you have any inkling like you want to do more as an ally for people of color in this particular moment in our collective history, then this conversation is for you. And even if you're like, nah, that's not for me then this conversation is definitely for you. So I hope that it resonates. I hope that it opens possibilities for where we go next, for where you go next and where we go next collectively. It was really a joy and a lot of fun. So let's get settled in. And hear what Dai has for us. Hi, Dai. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Andy, how are you today? I'm doing really well. It's nice to get grounded in with you, kicking off this, what is it, Tuesday, this lovely Tuesday morning in October. Yes, it is Tuesday. Oh my goodness. One more Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there's a there's so much we could talk about, and you and I have now had the chance to share space a few times, thanks to our mutual friend and ally and partner, Christina Frey, who, by the way, I just interviewed yesterday for the show, she which was really, awesome. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. She's she really awesome. special. She yeah. is. She's really awesome. But you are too, which is why I invited you on the show. And you actually you. said something that really made me lean forward before we started recording. And I thought maybe we could start there. And you said, you said that you try and be, I might, I might mangle this a little bit. So tell me if I'm not getting it right, but that you try and be who you needed when you were a child. Yes, that's exactly true. Yes. Um, So say more about that. Yeah. As you know, from previous discussions with me, I came up in foster care in Massachusetts um, and not the good kind of foster care that people imagine from ABC shows, but like the bad kind of foster care, unfortunately. So when I was coming up, I didn't see people like me. I didn't see people like me aspiring to do the things I wanted to do, to having the dreams I wanted to have. I always saw adults try to make me smaller, be grateful. Things can be worse for you. You know, this is not, this is not for you to want. This is not for you to hope. This is not for you to dream. You need to survive. You need to worry about surviving. Mm -hmm. And I just never fit into those boxes. And they always made me feel like I was, you know, bursting at the seams until I got to a place where I was like, okay, I can step out of this. I can, I can just be who I'm supposed to be without everybody else's um, understanding of how things are supposed to happen for me. So yes, every single day, every time I do something like this, every time I speak to someone outside my own family, who's tired of hearing me talk, I'm sure I try to be exactly who I needed to see out in the world. And that's why I do this stuff to make sure that someone somewhere, some little person um, has somebody to say, okay, I can do this. I can get through this. I can have dreams. So Uh, I'm so touched by that. And I, I just, it strikes me that that is a really powerful force for purpose and like, tell me, tell me a little bit more about what it's like to anchor in that in your everyday work and your everyday life to really say like somewhere, some little person might need to hear exactly what I have to say. And I didn't get to hear that. Some little person or some big person or some person (laughs) that's still searching. Um, You know, we're all at different levels. We're all at different levels of life. So it's not even just little people for me, but definitely always little people as a mom. I think about it a lot. But to be anchored in the fact that you have come from a place like where I came from, it it gives me this sense of um, it gives me this sense of power that I can never go back there again. I don't need anybody else. Therefore, I don't need anybody else for my survival. Therefore, Mm -hmm. every relationship that comes to me, every person that comes to me, every everything that comes to me is all just you know, meant to grow me as a person, you know, and that's, that is, that sense of power, that sense of self has helped me get to where I am today, just knowing that I can always, you know, I can always buy enough food, I can always like those, those basic, basic things that we take for granted as human beings. Those were very real things for me. So every day I know that I've got enough food in my cabinet. I've got enough money in my bank. I've got enough clothing on my back. I can take care of my kids. 
everything else is gravy, right? Mm. This is so much more than I ever anticipated for myself. So mm. this is this is almost more than I dared to dream. So every single day that I can afford to buy like peanut butter and jelly separately, I'm <laughs> I'm just I'm delighted to be alive, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that I felt that delight for me even before I knew that story and and our other the other spaces that we've shared. But I, if if, it would, if it's okay, I'd maybe like to look a little bit more at that journey because you sure. would, would that be all right? Yes, please, yeah. I'd be happy to. What would you What would you like to hear about? Since I know the story, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just really drawn to. There's two things you said that I'm drawn to. One was that there is. It sounds like there is some part of you, even as a child, who recognized that you didn't fit in the boxes that people kept trying to put you in. Yes, and. Yes. And we could maybe look at that. And then the other thing I heard you say is that there came a point when you realized that you had like you, it sounded like you got some clarity on who you really were. So it was like, first there was the awareness that the boxes they were trying to be put in weren't right. And then there was another moment or perhaps a, an arc of moments where you started to really see what was the space you belonged to. And I just wonder if you could unpack that for us a bit more. Yeah, sure. I can try. So um, I would definitely say it was not one moment in particular so much as many moments over my life where I would have someone, usually a person in with some authority over me, letting me know that I was shining too bright, letting me know that mm. I was getting too big, letting me know that I was wanting too much. And it occurred to me I much later than I would like to admit that people don't really... Um, how do I want to say this? And I think I've said this to you before, but it's really important to remember that if somebody tells you you can't do something, it's not because you can't do something. It's because they don't think they can do it mm. and they are putting mm. that on you. Mm. So I found myself, especially in the Massachusetts foster care system, surrounded by very small people. Mm. So I went on to relationships with very small people. And then when you start kind of growing out of that, that's not what people want for you when they love you. That's not what people want for you when they are in relationships with you. They want you to grow as big as you can and shine as bright as you can. And all that toxicity I sort of carried with me over, over you know, most of the years of my life until each time I would realize, and each time I walked away from something, I would realize it was because I had fallen into that pattern again of letting people tell me how big I could be, how much I could shine, how much I could do. Um, and I'll be very honest, I let the rage drive me, the rage at being told what I can't do. I mean, it's probably not therapeutically great, but um, I am very, very much driven by the need to to show that I can, to show other people that they can, to mm. show other people that there's more that they could do beyond what they've set for themselves. Mm. So. Yeah. Mm. So it sounds like you've always had a part of yourself that if someone said no, you're like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Oh, and I gonna... have a daughter exactly like that now. <laughs> I mean, I know it comes to, I, it came to me naturally is all I can say about that because I yeah. have a three-year-old that is exactly in that place. So yeah. that's exactly true. Yes. If yeah. somebody tells me you can't do this. I don't think you can. I'm like, I am definitely going to do this. <laughs> I wasn't going that direction, but now I will die on that hill. <laughs> so, 
Oh, that's awesome. I'm imagining kind of a funny scenario where your partner or even your kids can be like, oh, I know how to motivate mom to do stuff for (laughs) I I was just going to say, my partner, Jay, absolutely uses that against me. And sometimes I'm aware of it, but not always. Not not always, I'll be honest. Yeah. So hmm, there's so much I want to ask about, but I guess one thing I'm tuning into, and, and this is maybe saying more about about my orientation than yours. So I don't want to feel like I'm, I have any expectation around this question, but I'm just, I'm just noticing that, well, I have, I had a, I had a mentor for many years who always said hurt people, hurt people. Right. And it sort of feel like small people want to make, make small people, but, but like those small people that were doing unto you, there is some sense like how do they end up with that smallness? And you can start to just trace back this of chain of, so I just wonder yeah. how do you relate to, how are you relating to that, that sort of generational passing on of smallness and hurtness that we're all, we all in some ways are inheriting. It just sounds like you got a really distilled intense version of that because of your, upbringing. And I just wonder how you're relating to that now and how you're working with it now. Well, I would say, you know, it, it damaged me a lot as a child, of course. Um, you know, I had my birth parents who weren't able to take care of me, um, you know, and I had my my birth father kind of left. He was dealing with some emotional and mental issues. Um, and then my birth mother went on to have several very dangerous boyfriends. Mm. Um, and and as you look back at that as an adult, when I look back at that, I can see where his where my birth father's stuff comes from. I can see where my birth mother's stuff comes from. I can see why they were unable to stop that progression from being, mm. you know, from from poisoning me. When mm. I went into foster care, you can see like my foster father, he was an abusive alcoholic. His family were abusive alcoholics. My foster mother, she was abusive and racist and awful. And her family, like you can just see the lineage and the Mm -hmm. lines as an adult when you're outside of it. But when you're inside of it, you think this is about you. You Mm -hmm. think this is about your worth, your value. You brought this on yourself because that's, those are the messages you're receiving. That's what you're being told. But as an adult, I mean, and I cannot recommend therapy enough for everyone listening. I really can't. <laughs> um, but as an adult, you can definitely look at that and say, I know exactly where that came from. It stops with me. So mm. th- this this is not going any farther. Mm. Um, and I worried when I was thinking about having kids. Um, what if what if it's just crouching inside me? What if it's just waiting for uh, an appropriate situation? What if it's, you know, and of course, that's not the case. It's not something that's just hiding in there unless you I mean, unless you're not willing to deal with it. And then it very much might be. Mm. But for my purposes, um, I mean, I just it was exactly the opposite for me. I felt like the way I felt about my children. I suddenly in those moments when I became a mother felt so much less forgiving than ever I had about, you know, people who had failed to love or take care of me. Suddenly I was like, oh, wow, you guys are, you guys got some, like when I was not, when I didn't have kids, I was like, well, you know, they came from a long line of abusers. And Mm. now that I have kids, I'm like, 
you need to stay away from my mm. vicinity or bad things are going to mm. happen. You know, like I'm much less, mm. much less forgiving. Mm. So, Yeah. I'm hearing like there's a way in which you have a wider and deeper perspective on that history and lineage so you can understand it right. and even have compassion for it. But you right. also are really clear on, and that doesn't make it safe or right. And I know, and I know how to create the right boundaries around right. that right myself and my kids from that lineage that's exactly right so you cannot control what happened before you you can stop it from happening mm. to people after you and that's i mean that's crucially important for basically everything like a lot of systems exist in the world that didn't start with me but i am going to they are going to stop with me um so that drives me too that drives mm. me too that you know that's done i'm not participating in that this is over Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, uh, so we were also talking about before we started this, this theme of fierce hope that helped help give birth to this show. And, and I'm really encountering like a version of that, that fierce hope in you, this sense of like, it's not about like, Oh, everything's going to be great. If I just think positively and let go of my past, it's like, no, I'm going to take a stand because I believe in a better future for myself and my kids. And, and this is what it looks like. This is work. It's work to, it's work to have hope. It's work to be fierce. It's, it's not just going to happen. Nothing is just going to happen. We need to be working for what we want the world that we live in, the world our children live in to look like. The idea that oh, this is just the way it is. We've passed it down. I'm not, you know, the next generation will fix it. I don't feel that way. I feel like everything is my responsibility. And if it's surrounding me and I can impact it, I'm going to. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of people right now are like, I'm protecting my peace and I'm happy for them. And I'm happy that they can get there. I can't. I was born to fight. And that's mm -hmm. just, that's just all I'm able to do in these mm -hmm. situations. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Di. I really... No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. And I hope if anybody was like me and hears that fight, fight, you're worth it. You're yeah. worth it and it gets better. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry. No, I really hope that. I really hope that in the spirit of what you shared, that you're showing up the, for, in the way that you needed someone to show up for you. I really hope that that ripples out and I trust that it will. I want to, um, I'm feeling called to connect a dot between what we're talking about, which is anchored in your past, but really showing up and how you, who you are in the present and this commitment that you have both professionally and personally around um, eradicating racism and making a more just and equitable place for every human on this planet and, and the fact that you're really leaning into work around racial justice and diversity and equity and inclusion. Yes. Yep. Um, you can definitely make that connection. It's very, very clear if people know where I came from, how I got here. Um, it, if, you know, if people don't know, sometimes I get asked, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you here in this fight? You know, very clearly light skinned lady. Um, so I do have that conversation quite a bit, 
But on the other hand, if you see where I came from, you can see that this has been a fight going on my entire life to mm -hmm. make sure everybody has a seat at the table, to make sure that we're having these conversations, to not allow our past to dictate our futures. So, yeah, no, this is who I've always been. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm just I'm psyched that there's a job that, you know, that just allows me to be me. You know, I think that that's I think that's tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift that just as an aside, what a gift that's a rare thing in our in our hyper productive oriented society, this outcomes oriented society, to just actually find work yeah. that is lets you be you. It's yeah. really cool. I would have really been cool. having these conversations anyway, basically. Right. Like this is already what I am the most passionate about. Like now you're gonna pay me to be the most passionate person in the room. Okay. I got that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one thing you're you're modeling right now that I wanna underline, which is you know, you just honoring that when people encounter you or when any of us encounter anyone, we are, of course, on some level encountering this whole history that the person brings with them. But actually, for the most part, we're just kind of encountering yeah. our our projection of who they are based on how they look. And that's just like where that that bias is baked in. And so people are like, hey, OK, light skinned lady, like, why are you worried about racial justice? Right. Like that's I want to just underline that you're like yeah, cool. I can have that conversation. And then that's well, a powerful stance to say, like, I totally get why you're asking me that. And I'm not going to. Well, get that, so. two answers, right? Firstly, when we encounter someone for the first time, we're not encountering mostly anything about them. We're mm -hmm. encountering what we think about the things we see. So that's not really the same thing as encountering what that person is in that moment. That's your version of their, that's your lens, yeah. um, which is important to remember. However, um, to answer that question, honestly, um, my birth father is a brown-skinned Hispanic man. My mother, my birth mother, is a very, very light Irish woman. This is, this is how that looks phenotypically. It does not mean, and I've had to have many, many conversations about my identity um, for, those, for those reasons. And um, when I was coming up in foster care, all of my paperwork said Hispanic on it. Mm. Um, and the reason for that, for, for folks who don't know, Hispanic is not a race. Hispanic, just in case you don't know that, uh, Latinx is not a race. This is this is a culture. This is a this is um, you know people can be Hispanic or Latinx, very very light skinned. There are very very dark skinned Hispanic and and Latinx people. So um, our awareness of how a person should look with those identities are very much based in what we see in media representations and mm. not actually where they are in terms of um, in terms of what what you know they're not based in reality. So um, you know I do end up having that conversation quite a bit. But it also makes me sort of question my identity quite a bit because I have to be able to sort of walk both sides because I neither want to say I neither want to say I, I don't benefit from white privilege, which I very clearly do. And I don't want to say I'm entirely a white woman because I don't want to I don't want to lose any of that. I don't want to lose any of that, which had already mm. been taken from me and is really so taken from me in foster care mm. and is really so important to you know, who I would become. So that's those two pieces. And I know I said only two things, but it's actually, I'm going to make it three. Great. But also, um, it's important to ask, who has the microphone when we're having these conversations? Whose perspectives are being centered when we have these conversations? So now people of color, when I talk to them, they recognize pretty early on who I am. And that's 
And, and I've never had a person of color say, you don't belong in this conversation. Mm. The only people who ever tell me I don't belong in this conversation are people who present as white. Mm. So that's always been very interesting to me um, because it, 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 it lets me know that they don't feel like they have a place in this conversation. They don't feel like they have a responsibility in this conversation. It's not that they don't feel that I do. It's that they don't feel that they do. And Andy, I'm here to tell you today that literally they do. As people who benefit from systems of oppression, they also have a responsibility to help unmake these systems. Mm. So um, three-part answer to your very easy question there. Love it. I love it. The there's an analogy here. There's something about about the sort of small people making small people. Like there's a way in which the idea of whiteness, which we could dig into the history of when of and how and it emerged, was explicitly designed to to hurt, to to shrink, to yes. to make to to create boundaries between certain certain people. Of course. Um, and. It just seems to me that you, because of your commitments, because of your upbringing, because of your awareness of your identities and also the way people meet what they think about who you are the first time they meet you, like there's just all this stuff happening right at the moment that you step into these conversations. It strikes me that you, you're you sitting at a really unique position to say to someone like me, uh, who presents in this way as a white guy and maybe who hasn't had any of these conversations to actually say, when I say, why are you talking about this stuff, Di? You can, you can actually bring me in in a certain way because of all of my baggage that perhaps someone else isn't equipped to. Is that, is that, that's an instinct I'm having. Is that right? Yes, Do you experience- that's absolutely true. I regularly experience the feeling that I am in fact a Trojan horse being brought as the comfortable <laughs> looking woman into these businesses to have these conversations with folks. Um, and then too, too soon they realize that they have, they have, you know, uh, made a mistake <laughs> They've made a mistake <laughs> in terms of, in terms of my safety and comfort. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And that's absolutely a responsibility I take seriously. I have friends, especially women of color who will say to me, this is your responsibility because we aren't allowed in the room. We aren't mm-hmm. allowed to come mm. into these meetings, to have these conversations. You have to be educated. You have to know. You have to teach other people who look like you, who are invited to these meetings, who are invited in the room, what they need to do, what they need to say, what they need to be looking for to make sure that the door eventually opens to us. Mm. And I'm like, I take that so, so seriously because who else was left out of these conversations when their when their future was being determined? Uh, me. So I literally like I it's not even just like an intellectual thing for me. It's like who I am in my heart. Mm. So, yes, mm. every single time I am that I am invited to speak or I'm invited to talk. I am always making sure that there are other opportunities being presented to other people who don't look like me, um, you know, whenever and wherever possible. I've never sat on an all white person panel like even if I am half Hispanic, I've never, ever been like, oh, well, I'm half Hispanic, so I don't count as a white person. So everybody else, you can all be white. Um, you know, it's it's crucial that we we understand who's con- whose voices are being heard, who's, get, who's got the mic, who's got the platform um, when mm. we have these conversations. But it doesn't mean we don't have work to do, yeah. if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So. It does to me, yeah. I'm really drawn. I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that moment where where someone who who hired you realizes like, 
Oh shit. Oh, she's yeah. <laughs> she's not who we we our first impression was not quite right here. And um, I'm uh, yeah, yeah, so tell me more about that moment. I imagine that can be disruptive, uncomfortable, upsetting, like there's probably lots going on there. It can be. Um there are a lot of people um who think of themselves as progressive, who think of themselves as allies, and it's important to and and that can be just as toxic as people who don't realize that there's anything going on, mm. um, that there aren't systems of oppression that we all deal in every day. Um, because both people are blind to um, their roles in propping this stuff up. So um, sometimes I will run into people who call themselves allies that are very much anything but. Um, mm. And and I would say that s- sincerely, those are the hardest conversations because those are the people whose identities you are questioning, right? Those are the people who at their core feel like they're doing everything they, they can do or something I hear a lot of, I'm a good person. Why isn't that enough? It's like, why aren't they thanking me? Why aren't they? And it's like, okay, with so much toxicity at a time. So yes, when I enter a room and I start having these conversations, it is it can be jarring. Um, but it's always important and it's, it's hard, it's hard fought. Um, I guess I would say that people's people kind of shift, like, whereas before they might've been leaning forward to listen to me talk and now they're leaning backward and suddenly their arms are slowly crossing in front of their chest. <laughs> and you can yeah. sort of see all the, um, all the going into protective mode, you know, um, yeah. in conversations. And how do but, you, yeah. and how do you, so you you wouldn't be able to stay in the business you're in if you couldn't keep those people in the game and keep yourself in the game. So so someone starts to lean back, maybe the majority of your crowd starts to lean back, or maybe someone influential in the space starts to lean back and cross their arms. It's all the time. Yeah. How how are you internally, how are you responding to that so that you, you know, because I could imagine lots of us were so wired for acceptance that anytime someone gives us body signal that's ambivalent or unreadable, that can really trigger our defenses. So how do you stay open and focused when that happens? And then how do you bring them back? Like, how do you get them to uncross their arms and lean forward again? So in my mind, I'm always calculating, right? In my mind, I'm constantly calculating. So I'm thinking, oh, that's plan A gone. Now we're on plan B, you know? (laughs) And So, but the way that I bring folks back is I track back to what put them in the state that they felt like they needed to pull away Mm. and find what's at the root of that. If you've been doing this as long as I have, you can see where the kernel is that sort of pulled them back and you can address that for them. So sometimes I will, for example, use, and I hate this language, but it's absolutely true the business case for Mm. why diversity matters, why inclusion matters. And I will give examples that of real companies that have had these issues and and just sort of um, pull them back into the conversation. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll give the YouTube example where basically YouTube did not, uh, when they first started their, all of their videos, I'm sorry, excuse me, 10% of their videos were being uploaded upside down and they couldn't figure out why this was happening. And they were just like, it's not a bug. It's not a glitch. What's happening? And it turned out that people who are left-handed 
were holding their phones a different way than people who were right-handed. <laughs> so 10% of their videos in the early days were being uploaded upside down and they couldn't figure out, their entirely right-handed team couldn't figure out what wow. was going wrong. Yeah. And it's a very, very simple case study. And it's it doesn't really assign blame. It's not really about race, but it definitely demonstrates that if you are not thinking about diversity and inclusion, you are going to be out-innovated by people who are. Mm. So um, I kind of bring that back to, look, this is not even just good. This is also good business. And if you're not thinking about it, trust me, someone else is. If you don't think you can be out innovated, I'd like to introduce you to Blockbuster. You know, like there's, I, I, I will go full, I will go full, um, you know, full business, full, let's talk about it. Let's do case studies. Let's, let's talk about the science. And I love the science. So I'll just, I'll just lean into it. I have to do it all the time. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I just lean in. I lean into the science. I lean into right. the science. So you start speaking their language. You start sort of meeting them where they are in terms of, of, of what of they've care, they care about. Yes. But like, there's a shadow. I sense that there's sort of a, an underside or a shadow side to that approach in that at some point, how can I put this? Let's say I, I run a business and I buy in. I'm like, you're right. We are not diverse enough. And that's and that's hurting our bottom line. And that's right. like a pretty material motivation for me. And so I say, yep, I'm going to make this. I'm going to shift this. At some point in that process, I suspect I'm actually really going to have to look at what I actually mean when I say diversity versus what you mean and what you, what we really mean when we say diversity, because there's right. sort of a, a risk of trying to sh- get to the, the most pragmatic shortcut to that solution, as opposed to the really true, rich, diverse, variable. Sure. Yeah, of course. That's absolutely always the case. Well, not always. I'll be like, it's it's the case often. It's the case often that they will try to end road around it. And it usually goes into hiring. Oh, we just need to hire more people of color. Mm. It's never mm. hiring. It's never hiring. That's not the problem. I mean, even if you wanted to pay me $11 to keep finding you people of color, they're going to leave immediately because your culture is crap. Your mm. culture is toxic. And that's why people are leaving. Mm. Um, you know, I work in tech. So we always think of, you know, and, and this is a very famous quote from, um, you know, the book, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, where we think about, where we think about, um, you know, how women need to be doing more and getting seats at the table and be asking for more. But as as a, you know, a counterpoint to that, we think of women in tech as canaries in a coal mine. And we keep telling these canaries to lean in and be like, lean in canary, even though you're dying in, you know, in the coal mine. And when the canary dies, there seems to be this idea that we just need to get more canaries rather than deal with the toxicity <laughs> oh in the environment. Yeah. So it's almost never, it's, it's almost never hiring. Hiring isn't the issue. The toxicity in the environment is the issue. I could bring in as many new hires as you want. They'd all leave. Yeah. So what what's actually more crucial is, is leadership, how leadership thinks about inclusion and how that goes, how that gets translated into the culture of a team. It's mm. almost never hiring. Hiring is actually the last step when we talk about diversity and inclusion. But um, yeah, they oftentimes will try to end road and go directly to hiring, of yeah. course. Um, yeah. But I don't work with teams that I don't feel like 
share my vision for where they need to go because I don't like the idea of somebody stamping my name on bad work. Mm. So it really matters to me that they commit all the way with me or they go find someone else. It's, yeah. it's pretty straightforward. Plenty of work out there, you know? Yeah. Hmm. When they commit. Yes. I'm part of me is really curious about the people who refuse to commit, but that I, I yeah. that like I can sort of see there's a way in which I just want to like be a spectator in that Aim moment. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like when they go, shit, wow. Cause I mean, toxicity is a, and maybe you don't use this language, but that's like kind of a harsh blow to the ego to realize that how you're showing up and how you're asking other people to show up is at best perpetuating the status quo, which is like pretty mediocre and at worst really harming people. Um, And, and you think you're a good person. Right. And so you're like really starting to be like, yo, you need to look at this. And I imagine that that can be really hard for people to like shoulder the truth that they have, they have contributed to or made choices that have harmed other people and made their, their culture unsafe and unproductive and unmotivating. Of course. But, you know, you just use a little bit of human psychology, unfortunately, which is me saying, Andy, I know that you're an ally. I know that you care about this stuff. So as you know, (laughs) this is really the most important thing. And who's going to challenge me at that point? No one. Everybody's going to be like, yes, I'm an ally. I care about this. You know, let's agree. And then I have I have allies in having these conversations. So it's always, it's always about finding folks who already think that they're good people and they are, and then giving them the proper tools to get the work done. It's never me coming into a company and saying, all right, all y'all suck and you're terrible people. Your workplace is toxic. That's why you can't hire anybody. It's, it's always so much smoother than that. It's a very practiced, it's a very practiced conversation that I have with folks. Now, that being said, that's on that's on the dealing with white folks, you know, mm, side. Mm-hmm. Dealing with people of color is a very different situation because when I walk into the room, suddenly it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And I recognize that and I feel that and I'm just like, let me please show you that I can be trusted, that I know what I'm doing, and that the way that I work matters. We are going to change things. And if we can't, you are welcome to shout it from the rooftops that I'm terrible at my job. And just that chance, after all of the times that they have probably been burned in the past, means so, so much to me that I carry that weight in all the work that I do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... It's, I, I recognize it. I have to address it. I have to talk about it. And I have to show, I have to show up the way I have to put my money where my mouth is a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. So when you describe that, so one thing I've, I love that. And I love that distinction. And one thing I've experienced, which, which now there's a lot, there are many names and useful names for like this phrase of, of white fragility, right. Is a one way we might describe and of course, some some people, white people, hear that word and they're like, "I'm not fragile, right?" Like, you know, All right, yeah. right. So there's sort of just what am I trying to say here? There's a way in which I really sense that you trust yourself, and that trust in yourself allows you to hold steady when either your mostly white audience is like leaning back in their chair and be like, "What is she, what is she trying to say about us?" Yeah. 
or you're mostly people of color audiences saying like, look who this, look at this light skin lady. What does she have yeah. for us? Right. How can we trust her? And it's just sort of like, you're grounded enough. You're not fragile. <laughs> like right. there's a, there's a sort of solidity. And um, that just seems like a really fucking awesome skill mindset way of being to develop. And, and like, the thing is, I just, I just like want my wish. If I had a wish or a fierce hope for all of, for myself and all of my white friends is to actually see that all of us in our own way are capable of that level of solidity that we can with humility and vulnerability say, are like, if I'm a CEO, like, I just want to come to you and let you know, I realize that our culture is really unhealthy and I'm willing, and I'm committed to, to finding a new way. And I don't know what that looks like. And I'm, and I want, and I need you to come with me on this journey. Like that's not weakness. That's actually solidity. That's actually strength. And you're modeling that. And I just want to hear you talk more about that. The point. Yes. So that's literally the point. Thank you for underlying that. That's literally the point. So me showing up the way I show up, I hope demonstrates to other people who look like me, how to show up the way I show up. And, and that's, I, I hope to be seen as somebody doing the work. I hope to be seen as somebody who's in these rooms, having these conversations, showing up in an authentic way, but showing up in such a way that I am being real with folks and not sugarcoating anything and not letting anybody off the hook. And I'm hoping that by demonstrating how to have these hard conversations, what the science is, what the information is, what the examples are, that it shows other people that they absolutely have a role to play in dismantling systems of oppression. And if people can see that, if one person walks away, who looks light-skinned walks away and says, I have work to do, that's literally everything for me. Mm. I don't even care. So mm. like, that's mm. literally everything. I will stand mired in this for my life. So a few people can look at me and say, I can do better. Mm. And that's what matters. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's this, um, I'm getting this like really wonderful image of earlier when you were talking about seeing the lineage and then, and then like drawing a line in the sand or maybe, I'm almost imagining like the lineage, like water, and you're just sort of creating like a basin. It's like, okay, the water can flow here, but it's not flowing any further. And that to do that for yourself and your history is a gift. But then to say like, we as a team are going to do that for our company, or we as a community are going to do that for a community. And that means that more of us need to just recognize that this is where we draw the line in the sand. We take ownership over over the past, even though we weren't the ones who were there when it happened, we just say we have to own it now. Otherwise our kids are going to get it. That's right. And, and that doesn't mean we're like, there's no moment where we have to say, I'm a shitty person because of my past. I just say like, wow, we can do better. And if we, all of us do better together, we could actually change this. Exactly. This place could actually be more awesome. And we could actually reach a future where people from different cultures can not only communicate with each other, they can actually stand side by side with each other in our common humanity. Like how fucking cool would that be? Exactly. Having that vocabulary, having that, uh, having, um, doing away with that white fragility, being able to put that down, not feeling like you have to participate in white solidarity or any of those things, being able to say, 
I know how to have these conversations now. I know why they're important. It stops with me. I don't assign blame. There's no reason to assign blame. It doesn't make any sense. All I'm asking folks to do is see that there are systems of oppression and that they have a responsibility in dismantling them. I don't assign blame. I don't say you're the reason. I say this stops here. And here's how we move forward. Here's how we move forward because science. So like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's really not an argument to be had yeah. at a certain point in a conversation with me. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. And what's yeah. cool about that invitation actually, and maybe you're using the responsibility, which I really love and use with my clients a lot, but there's also even beyond responsibility, there is, and maybe this is quote unquote, the business case for, for responsibility, but yeah. like there's actually way more fun and joy and connection. It's actually when you take that stance and start to build that capacity to stand steady, even when you're in a, a difficult conversation, life starts to become easier. You start to have right. more fun. Yeah. You start to be, you actually start to feel less afraid. Like the scarcity mindset that we've all inherited starts to yes. sort of lose its holds. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like this wonderful surprise. I think that a lot of people are afraid of giving up quote unquote, giving up ground because it feels like a loss they feel like, oh, if I start to change how things are now, which like, by the way, if I'm honest, as a, as a white guy, things are pretty things good are right great. now. Yeah, things are going great. <laughs> so if I start to change how things are now, that means I have to admit I'm a bad person. That means I have to give up my power. That means like there's all of these, even if I'm not conscious of them, there's all of these reasons why I wouldn't change. But actually what you're inviting people to is like, no, actually, you're going to become stronger. You're going to become more flexible. You're going to start to have right. more fun. Your company is yeah. going to start making more money. You're going to like, you know, like all of these like really cool things open up and you're not going to like, you're not going to catch on fire and explode if a, if a person of color says like, you're being really fragile right now. <laughs> so, so that's the other thing. I remind people that they are safe in their bodies so that if they have to receive feedback, um, it's not going to kill them. I've said a million times, I've been checked so many, like so, so many times um, by people of color, women of color, who feel that I am trustworthy enough to receive feedback mm. on my mm. on my behavior, mm. on my personhood. And I can't imagine a, a greater statement of trust than I have come to you who I feel like are in maybe a a position of of some authority over my job potentially, and I am bringing this to you. I try to receive my feedback in public wherever possible so Mm. I can model Mm. how to receive feedback. Mm. It's so, so crucial. Not only that you get to do the fun side of the work, that you have to do the hard side of the work too. And never, ever, just never, ever use failure as a as a reason that for to keep you from doing something like this because everybody's going to fail everybody's going to fall on their face the purpose here is to fail forward always be failing forward so yeah. that's i mean don't yeah. let the fear of, of of messing up stop you mess up all the time always mess up that's how you get better <laughs> yeah. so could you take us into i'm feeling i feel like in the spirit of of making that public for people listening as best as you're able could you take us into a moment where you were on a public stage and you received the kind of feedback that we're sort of describing generally. It might be nice to make that more specific so people can hear that and feel that. 
Sure. I was giving a talk a couple of weeks ago, which I felt I felt like was going pretty well. Um, I was the only person on the talk and I had basically this person came on to the, these were all virtually, by the way, yeah. um, because it was two weeks ago. Um, a person came on about halfway through my conversation. And I had kind of given um, all of the information that I have so, sort of given to you over the, our talks. And she just like at the very end of the conversation, they were like, anybody have any questions? It was like 50 seconds left. And she goes, why are you a white lady? And I was just like, well, <laughs> here we are. Here we are again. And I was just like, well, you know, like, you know, and like basically the moderator's like, you have one minute. And I'm like, perfect. So <laughs> I'm like, I both want to address the fact that, thank you, good question. You should be asking who you're getting your information from. But I also want to note that if you had listened to the previous, you know, 90 minutes of my conversation, I've talked quite a bit about this, but, um, you know, surpassing all that. And then people messaged me afterward. They were like, why did you even answer her question? That was so cringy. I was like, it's fine. And let me be clear here. It was not a woman of color. It was a white woman. It's always a white woman <laughs> who's, who's asking, you know, what, what business I have here. And as I said before, it's always, it's always that they don't feel like they have any business, yeah. not that I don't truly have any business. Yeah. But obviously, I definitely think that uh, it's important to be able to receive that feedback and, right. you know, ask, answer the question that everybody's asking themselves if you haven't gotten to it already. I actually asked the moderator to ask just in case it didn't come up, but it always comes up. So it's OK, <laughs> you know. But yeah, no, the ability to receive feedback, even if it's about your identity, can be can be important sometimes in these conversations. However, I never feel like it's important to need to defend your identity. That's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. If somebody tells you, because I've also had people be like, oh, you don't look like a Hispanic person. And it's like, what does a Hispanic person look like? What do you think a Hispanic person looks mm -hmm. like? Other white guy? Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, all right, well, thanks for that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I get all kinds of feedback. I get all kinds of feedback. And when I was in college, actually, um, at Georgia State, um, taking, you know, my my racial studies classes, uh, I took Georgia State had a program at the time, and I think they still do, where basically, if you are over the age of 60, you can go to school for free. So I had lots of people in Atlanta who had like, you know, marched with Dr. King, amazing, amazing people just in my classes, checking us regularly about things that we thought were, were reality. And, and I just, I remember one woman in particular, just be like, sometimes she'd say something and I'd be like, is that necessarily true? But I rem I realized mm -mm, this is not my place to have anything to say on that. If she says that's true, that's true. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not about to question history from this woman, not one bit. Yeah. So um, yeah, I've been. I mean, getting checked is just part of this work. Getting checked right. is part of this work. Being able to receive feedback is part of this work. And as long as you are centered in who you are and why you're here, and you don't need to be here as a as a white savior, then it's important. Uh, it's important that you stand strong in why you're here. Yeah. Mm. So. Mm. I'm conscious of the fact that we only have a few minutes left. I think oh, I want to. Um, that went fast. <laughs> it went really fast. Yeah, this has been fun. Um, I'm sort of sitting with this. One of the most common dividing lines that I see, and it might, it's not maybe the most common, but it is certainly a common one at least from where I sit, is the um, argument or the belief or the fear maybe 
that by talking about our differences um, and all the ways we've been talking about it, like white versus color, whatever it is, whatever difference we want to bring in, that by naming it and talking about it, we're somehow <clears throat> perpetuating it and worsening it, right? And so there are people who say like, we just want everyone to like, we're never going to get to a place where we're one human species if we keep talking about our differences. And I wonder if you could speak to that argument, because it just seems to me that the only way through, like the only way towards that future is through. Right. We can't do the We can't do the end yeah. runs that someone in it, like a, like the analogy on a social level is that like leader who's like, okay, got it. I just need to hire more people of color. Like we can't just do the end run around these conversations. And I would love, I like really believe in a future state where not in a way that we've kind of made everyone gray and paved over difference, but in a way that we are both totally in our, our, our unique identities and also inclusive of the larger human identity in a way that is really beautiful and really right. sustainable and really instead of harmful and repressive and shrinking, it's uplifting. So I really believe in that future possibility. And I don't want, I, I don't think we should end run around it. And I just wonder right. how you well, deal with that, that pushback around, of you're course. making it worse by talking about this die. Like, why don't you just, yeah. you know. I do get that a lot. And it's, it's basically two schools of thought that exist within diversity and how to deal with diversity. One of those is the colorblind approach, which is I don't see color. Mm-hmm. everybody sees color unless they're literally colorblind. And if you don't see how I'm different than you, you don't see how different systems affect me differently. You don't see how laws you vote for affect me differently. Mm-hmm. You don't see how anything that's out in the world impacting me affects me differently. When somebody says to me, hey, I, I voted for so-and-so because, you know, some stupid reason. I'm like, did you consider how that impacts everybody else who doesn't look like you? Just because things don't impact you doesn't mean they're not real or they're not important. Mm. So there's the difference between colorblindness. And we need to think about who asks us to be colorblind, typically. Mm. Who asks us that we all just be one human race? I've never had a black woman say to me, oh, we're all one human race. It's never happened because people who don't experience the world the same way as the person asking feel very, very dismissed and very, very um, unseen by people who are asking for that model of dealing with the world and our differences and our diversities. So the colorblind approach has been largely... um, you know, largely let go by by uh, social scientists. And what we're seeing instead is this multicultural approach, which mm-hmm. is where we know about differences, we respect differences, we build equity around differences, we give people opportunities based on, um, we give, uh, we think about opportunities in different ways to make sure that they're equitable and that not only one type of person is getting to our hiring pools or one type of person is getting to other kinds of opportunities or one type of, so a multicultural approach gives us this understanding um, and and is largely driven by self-education and all allyship is driven or should be driven largely by Mm self-education and that that willingness to be a lifelong learner, which is something you have and something I have, and and probably something that um, a lot of your listeners have. So if you are a lifelong learner, this is something Mm. you can do. This is something you can take on. You can educate yourself and have that be um, something that drives you forward. There's a lot of gatekeeping around this where like, if you don't have a PhD in literally every single 
um, in every single culture, in every single language. But if you think about why the gatekeeping exists, nobody has everything that would be necessary, right? So sometimes people say to me, die, you don't have a PhD, how can you do this? And it's like, anybody who says to me, I need more, is someone who would keep moving the goalpost further down the field before they were willing to mm. listen to me anyway. Mm. So mm. I never question myself and say, do I need more, you know, more degrees in order to be doing this work? No, I'm good where I am. You're good where you are. Pick up a book, take down some systems with me, you know, like, we can do it. Here we go. You don't need to be anything more than what you are. You can be in progress and do this work. Yeah. That's yeah. So, so, so yes to that. It comes up two systems. There we go. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Anytime. <laughs> no, I'm here for it. Anytime. Yeah. Here's to, here's to the power of lifelong learning to the, to the sort of power of just being solid with, with, uncertainty and imperfection to just like let us be right where we are right now and rather than use that as a, an excuse not to do anything use that as the as the ground we're going to build from wait you so, are great as you are in progress is how everybody is get started today yeah yeah thank you Di. you just really you are abs- i encounter you as someone who is absolutely not only being who it sounds like you needed as a kid but also being who a lot of us need as kids and adults right now in the world. And, um, you know, I really am grateful for you. I'm grateful our paths cross. I'm grateful for all that you've Damn. already taught me and just psyched <laughs> that you're out in the world doing what you do. Well, I deeply appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, reach more people who maybe need to hear it. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. If people want to check uh, out your work or find out more about you online, where should they go? So you can go, you can catch me online, dicerulo.com, which is D-I-C-I-R-U-O-L-O.com. I I have my books available for pre-order. My classes are up there. If you want to reach out to me, you can get me through all of that. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and, you know, all the other usual places. (laughs) And and you, you tell me the name of your book again. I'm forgetting, but it's really cool what you've written. Ally Up. The book is called Ally Up. Yep. And very much discusses what we've just discussed today, which is you're great as you are. Here's how you get better. Yeah. Brilliant. I can't <laughs> wait to that. read it. I'm, I will sign you a copy for sure. Uh, <laughs> yes. Nice. Yes. Beautiful. All right, Di. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on, and keep the show going for as long as I'm able. But 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, 
and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.